The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you ask them, is there like a reasonable expectation from that user that that piece of content is public and therefore like could be programmatically provided to like every newsroom in the world or something, the answer is 100% no. And so there's this gray area right now between like the user expectations around privacy and publicness, and then sometimes what the actual technical and legal semantics are. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 17th. 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. And we're excited to feature a discussion with Brandon Silverman, a former Facebook executive and founder of the data analytics tool CrowdTangle, about transparency in social media. Brandon joined Facebook in 2016 after the company acquired CrowdTangle a startup designed to provide insight into what content is performing well on Facebook and Instagram. And he left in October 2021, in the midst of a debate over how much information Facebook should make public about its platform. As the New York Times described it, CrowdTangle, quote, had increasingly become an irritant to Facebook's leadership, quote, as it revealed the extent to which Facebook users engaged with hyperpartisan right-wing politics and misleading health information. Evelyn Duick and I spoke with Brandon about what we mean when we talk about transparency from social media platforms and why that transparency matters. We also discussed his work with Congress and other regulators to advise on what legislation ensuring more openness from platforms would look like and why it's so hard to draft regulation that works. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 17th. The nuts and bolts of social media transparency. I'm really excited to talk to you because I think you have a uniquely valuable perspective on one of the most important and topical issues in platform regulation right now, which is transparency. So to start off, can you talk us through your background in this space? What has your work been up until this point and what insight has it given you into the importance of and the difficulties of creating transparency in the social media market? Yeah, I mean, the, the short version of my background in the space is that I am um, one of the co-founders and was the CEO of uh, a tool called CrowdTangle. Um, we were a startup that got started in 
think we got incorporated in 2011 or so, but struggled like a lot of startups for a while to figure out exactly what we're building and why we had originally had this vision of a community organizing tool kind of built on top of Facebook's open graph, but it didn't work for, for lots of reasons. Um, and it was around 2013, 2014 that we kind of realized what we actually had was a tool that made it really easy for um, people to see what content was doing well on Facebook. And um, around that time was when Facebook was starting to really ramp up how much third-party content was on the platform. Kind of prior to 2013, the feed, if you logged in, was if you logged in back then, was almost exclusively friends and family. But around 2012, 2013, 2014, they started pushing out a lot more news content, a lot more publisher content, et cetera. Um, and suddenly there was this really huge demand to understand what did well on the feed. Um, and we had kind of inadvertently built this tool that did that. And we started kind of really leaning into it. And over the course of the next few years, we built a wide variety of kind of products that took social data and made it really easy to use. Most of our clients were publishers in the news industry, but we had begun to expand kind of also into sports and entertainment, a little bit of brands, um, but mostly people doing original content and trying to distribute it through social media. And then in 2000, end of 2016, uh, we were acquired by Facebook. And so I, we spent, I spent the last four years running the team from inside Facebook. And probably the real big connection there is that we went from just being a tool that made it easier for publishers to kind of look at social data and make sense of it for a bunch of different purposes to actually working with a bunch of other parts of kind of civil society. So we began expanding the tool to nonprofits, human rights organizations, advocacy groups, um, election protection organizations, et cetera. And then the process became one of you know, the main ways that Facebook was transparent about what was happening on the platform uh, when it came to organic content. You know, so basically the last 10 years, but especially the last four, I've been kind of very deep in trying to make sense of social data and trying to understand what is happening on the platforms uh, with, you know, a definite focus on Facebook and Instagram over the last few years. But at different points, we've worked with we've worked with almost every major social network. So that's my background. Uh, there's a lot more to the story, but that's kind of the high level. The biggest takeaway I took from the work is how much demand there is from different parts of civil society for the data that lives on these platforms. And that there are organizations ranging from international health groups to election protection organizations to news organizations that struggle to do their jobs unless they have some window into what's happening on these platforms. And that a bunch of these platforms have simply become so important to the civic and political discourse in so many countries that transparency and making it easy to see what's happening with a certain subset of content is ultimately just a responsibility that I think a lot of these platforms now have. And, you know, it was an amazing experience, but also just a really humbling one to see all the different ways in which the data can really make possible so much important work happening in the world. And then we need to find ways to, to unlock it on like a more sustainable way and also for other platforms as well.
There's so much there in what you said, and we we definitely want to dig into the details. But before we do that, I want to do just a, a little bit more scene setting. So you left Facebook in 2021. So you're you're talking about this now as an an outsider. I don't want to press you too much in the internal politics, but I am curious about sort of the broader question of what you've seen and the industry incentives around these kind of tools to the extent that you can speak to it. Um, you you gave an interview to the New York Times in January where you commented that quote, there was a vision about transparency that I believed in and that my team had come to believe in. And it was clear we wouldn't be able to pursue inside that inside Facebook as much as we had in the past. And The Verge also reported that in your farewell post to employees, you wrote that, quote, I'm not sure what the future holds for CrowdTangle or data transparency here at Facebook, but I'm optimistic. So I wanted to tease that out a little bit. What's the basis for that optimism? I mean, is there always going to be a fundamental inconsistency between the the business objectives of of these platforms, which are you know commercial entities, and the goal of enabling transparency and external research, or is there a way to bridge that divide? So I think a handful of things. So first of all, I'm in all transparency. I'm also just a fundamentally optimistic person. So uh, that 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 definitely frames part of my outlook on all these things. But you know, I think that one of the things that's happening is that the work we did over the last few years, I think elevated the potential of this work in the space. And that there were a lot of folks at a lot of different platforms who have reached out to me, both in the process of when I was leaving, as well as after, in order to take some lessons we learned and figure out how to apply them to even other platforms. Um, So one is, I, I do think that there were a lot of examples of the positive impact this sort of work can have But I also think secondly, just to be super blunt, is there is a lot of regulatory interest around the world in trying to, you know, pass different types of regulation related to big tech and social media. And one of the ones that's a recurring theme, I think, in all of these different regulatory explorations is transparency and data sharing. And so I think that is another piece of the degree to which this has become a high profile enough issue that I think regulators are really interested in trying to figure out a solution was another source of my optimism. It is absolutely true that there are challenging incentives you have to navigate when you're inside these companies. And that was something we ran into for sure. And I think, you know, one of the things I've told people, you know, in my own conversations is that, you know, a lot of the thorniest decisions, at least this is my experience uh, inside Meta, is a lot of the thorniest decisions of the companies are very rarely kind of like monolithically decided that there are lots of different departments and leaders who have different opinions. And we had an enormous amount, I think, of goodwill and support inside Meta. Meta, But there are also conflicting incentives. And also on top of conflicting incentives, the other reality around some of this stuff is also to competition over resources. And that sometimes it's not whether somebody internally supports it or not, but how do they support it relative to like the 10 other things that they're being asked to support as well. So yeah, I mean, I think, and I, you know, what I'll also say is I think since I've left, uh, and we can talk about this more a little bit later, but like, you know, I've been doing a, a lot of work with different regulators and lawmakers around the world. And um, there's there's more interest than I ever imagined. Um, and so I'm also optimistic that there's going to be meaningful legislation passed somewhere. I'm not sure about the U.S., but somewhere. And I think that's going to be a really important moment in the industry. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm really excited and kind of optimistic about this moment as well, because, you know, I, I'm a 
free speech scholar and I, I think this is where this really unique moment in history because so much sort of free speech uh, theory and jurisprudence is based on these kind of empirical assumptions about how speech works in society. Like if you do X, there'll be chilling effects or, you know, counter speech is the best remedy for, for speech. And for the first time kind of maybe in history, uh, there's actual data about how speech works in society, but it's all locked up within these private companies and they're sort of within these uh, very few hands rather than, um, you know, you were mentioning all of the stakeholders that really want this information and we can test some of these empirical hypotheses that that, that speech law and theory is based on. And so I'm, I'm curious to sort of get a bit more detail from you on the kinds of questions that that data might answer as one of the few people that has uh, seen a lot of it and has some insight. Why is transparency important? Like what are the questions that we need answers to that social media companies have the information that could help us answer? So I think about it in a handful of ways. And I, and I, you know, there's a number of different ways in which you could zoom in or zoom out on this stuff. So there's like transparency um, writ large. Within transparency, one of the mechanisms of it is data sharing. So I'll zoom in on that one as well. Once you get into data sharing, there's also lots of different types and mechanisms and sorts and audiences and purposes. I'll try and speak mostly to both like my experiences or data sharing that I was involved in or saw directly, et cetera. But I think one, one piece of it is, and this is kind of based on the experience we saw, is that we live in an age because of these platforms of like unprecedented scale and speed of online discourse. And that includes, you know, unprecedented scale and speed of misinformation as well. And I think fundamentally what data sharing can give you are transparency tools that match that speed and scale and give you the possibility to monitor and engage with and debate the ideas of the day in real time as they're happening instead of being a world where they suddenly are disseminated to tens, 20 millions of people and we don't study it, realize it, engage with it until three months later, a year later, two years later. And that there's a real role for unlocking the ability to simply kind of, you know, it's in some ways kind of like a classically philosophically liberal idea of like, how can we inch our way towards a marketplace of ideas? And I think one of them is making sure that important, meaningful, civic and political discourse is not sitting inside walled gardens, but is open and transparent and people can see it. Um, and then in some ways, I think one of the biggest challenges that at least I feel like I've seen in the misinformation, disinformation space is how hard it is to define these terms. And that it is and not only how hard is it to define them, but how hard is it to define them globally, universally for three billion people in, you know, millions of different communities and contexts and languages. And I think one of the answers to that challenge is openness, is creating room for as many people to look at those definitions and and create them and argue over them and change them over time and all the different implications that has in terms of what can be on, what can and can't be on a platform. But even for all the stuff that can, is never going to be violating, allowing it to be public and open so that it can be a part of a marketplace and a town square that people can debate and engage with it. So I think one is simply inching our way towards a healthier town square by making sure as much of the influential and meaningful discourse is simply like viewable and open and able to be seen and debated and engaged with. So I think that's one. I think the other one is, is I think there's an operational challenge. Some of these platforms exist in almost every community on earth. Um, in some places, they are the primary deliverer of news, 
But the vast majority of these platforms, essentially, I mean, I think it's safe to say like none of them have staffed up to the point where they have genuine, real local expertise in all of these communities. And so what happens is you run into all these challenges where it's difficult to build classifiers that exist in a particular dialect of a language of a, you know, region of a country that's, you know, not that large or, you know, not that particularly financially important to a platform. And then moreover, oftentimes a lot of these questions around content moderation or where the lines are on various community standards are fundamentally like complicated and nuanced and require real local expertise to figure out and weigh in on. And until we live in some magical world where platforms are able to, you know, decide to staff up in every single community they exist in, I think the other answer is more openness and transparency. So those local communities themselves can see what's happening and participate in like, you know, the moderation and monitoring of those, you know, of those spaces themselves. You know, I think there's, I could go on for a while. I think one other, you will hear me talk about at some point during this is that I think one of the other really big challenges we have in the data sharing space is, I guess, two more. There's a lot, a lot of the diagnoses of problems on social media right now are relying way too much on anecdotal observational data. There's not nearly enough of like a really robust peer reviewed, you know, deeply informed research community that is focused and dedicated to understanding, you know, the impact of these platforms on everything from our democracies to our well-being to our neighborhoods. And we need to unlock that simply to be able to understand what the problems are in the first place. And I think in some of the regulation being imposed in different places, like there's definitely a cart before the horse where they're attempting to solve problems where it's not even a hundred percent clear that we're sure those problems are the real problems. And I can say from, you know, at least some of them in the inside, like in some cases, they're not the right, they're, you know, they're not the right problems. Yeah. A fourth one is a slightly more narrow one, but the one specific thing I worked on when I was at Meta is one of the things that happens is there's violating content can show up on the platform, can be caught by whatever particular mechanism it is. And in a lot of cases, what happens is it gets removed, gets taken down from the platform. And more often than not, essentially kind of like completely deleted and and kind of just disappears forever. A lot of that violating content is actually really important to the public interest and would be enormously valuable if we were able to create spaces for that content and the actors involved and the networks they create and build to be studied by an outside community and an independent research ecosystem over time. And what's happening right now is just a lot of it goes away forever. And there's very little ability for uh, an outside independent ecosystem to help study and understand and be able to recommend policies and regulations and um, advance our overall understanding of the whole space. Um, And instead, it's just being left up to these, you know, to the private companies. So I think unlocking more of an ability to also research and share removed content is a really huge opportunity in the data sharing space um, and want to talk a lot about. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's so much even in, in what you said. And I just couldn't agree more with the statement about the the fear of regulating based on anecdata. Um, you know, these platforms are so big that you can find an example of basically anything at any time. Um, you can find a mistake in one direction or a mistake in the other direction or some kind of problem. But it's really sort of, we need to think much more systemically about where are the systemic breakdowns or the, the system-wide problems or the social, wide, uh, social problems uh, rather than sort of focusing on individual instances. And of course, we can't do that without the transparency, uh, exactly as you're saying. Um, But then you sort of said this really tantalizing thing about, you know, when we 
think about anecdata or, you know, when we focus on anecdotes, it suggests problems and we sort of focus on problems externally that may not be the true problems. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that, about what you think the biggest difference is between sort of the external narrative and perception of platforms right now and social media right now and what you think the real problems might be. So, I mean, I think the the general narrative right now, the general understanding of of platforms is, you know, they're, they're completely awash with political and medical disinformation. Everyone's getting their news there all the time. And it's sort of destroying democracy and they're, they're organizing for malicious purposes. And I'm sort of curious about how that matches up with what the data actually shows. Yeah. So maybe I'll give three examples. I mean, I think one that we're coming out of kind of the back end on is in early days of social media, there was a, a huge fear of echo chambers um, and sometimes filter bubbles, which is and in, in very specifically the idea that these online spaces expose you to more narrow, you know, diversity of information and news than other mediums, including offline spaces. I think what we've seen at the very least is that's not conclusively true. And it is also possible. And I think Oxford just did like a lit review on this. And there's also Axel Bruns who actually wrote a book called um, About Filter Bubbles, that actually it's it's both more complicated. And to the degree that we do have data available, it suggests you actually are exposed to more diversity of ideological news sources on a feed than you are in offline environments. And then our understanding of that particular fear, I think has gotten more nuanced over time. And I think it's certainly not as like narrow as it originally was like painted when we first were kind of introduced the idea in a very tantalizing way. And by the way, I will preface all of this by saying that I think in almost all these cases, one of the problems is we still need more data. I think the second one, I think, I, you know, I do think in the misinformation, disinformation space, and I think, you know, I do think the discourse on this is starting to evolve is one, it is very hard to define those things without getting into political arguments. And that one person's definition of misinformation is another person's, you know, uh, truth. But then secondly, the actual effects of what people claim are misinformation, I think are also more nuanced than we realized uh, they might have been when we were first, you know, getting, I think, very concerned about to what degree this might be a problem. And it's not to say it's not a problem, but I think, you know, when you looked at CrowdTangle at any given day, the vast majority of the content were recipes, celebrities, goats on cop cars, and like, you know, announcing the first day of spring. And that does not mean that there are not like deep social responsibilities to, you know, mitigate the degree to which there is disinformation and, you know, harmful content on the platform. But I think for folks who think the entire system is some massive misinformation ecosystem, like if it's just like not. That's not at least what we saw. I think the third one is I, I think what also undergirds all of this and again, why we need more research on it is in some ways, I think like we've partly been measuring a lot of this work wrong over time. And that at least when you talk about Facebook, it is so large that oftentimes when you think you've identified one particular dynamic and the social or political or well-being impact of that particular dynamic more often than not, uh, it is very hard to control for all the factors when you're doing any of those studies without like a really robust external ecosystem. And what 
more often than not happens is you're looking at one particular community and the impact that that particular thing has on one community. And it is entirely possible that there's a very different dynamic as soon as you go to someplace else around the world. And that the local nuances and the degree to which communities and social norms and demographics and political realities, all of these things shape the way people use the platform, the way bad actors try and use the platform are just manifestly like diverse and complicated. And part of what we have to do is get more narrow in the questions we're trying to answer to better understand them. And so in applying this back to misinformation and disinformation, I think one of the things we have begun to learn as we've started to study this more is that one of the biggest risks in that space is actually when you're zooming in on particularly vulnerable communities, that it might be that very few people actually see misinformation, but it might be that particularly vulnerable communities see a lot of it and it has a really big impact on their beliefs. And I think that sort of deeper and more nuanced and looking at more narrow versions of these questions is, I think, a really important place where we have to go, you know, as we study all this stuff going forward. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers 
with my personal information. 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So I think that's a, a good lead-in to the subject that inevitably this conversation was going to come around to at some point, which is... Uh, the New York Times journalist Kevin Roos's uh, top 10 on Facebook Twitter account. Uh, so for, for listeners who are not familiar, this is a Twitter account that Roos, who's a tech journalist, has set up uh, to tweet out the top 10 link posts, so posts on Facebook that link to sites outside Facebook from CrowdTangle data. And almost invariably, the lists are largely, if not exclusively, high-profile right-wing inflammatory commenters. So Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino. I think that's maybe a, a good in to sort of digging into some of the things that you discussed just there. Because, you know, if if you look at those those tweets from the account, it, it looks like, you know, there's a there's a, just a total cesspool <laughs> that all, all the, the content that's per performing well or the content that's performing the most well is this really inflammatory stuff. Um, so I'm curious for your thoughts on that. And then also, you know, I think this gets to this question of how we use data, because, of course, executives at Facebook have argued publicly um, that these lists are a misleading portrait of what's going on in the platform because the more relevant metric is reach. 
Um, so why why is it that the picture painted by engagement would be materially different to reach? Yeah, so there's a lot in there. I think I think one really important thing is to be careful about how you describe that list. I think one of the important things I've we really tried to hold ourselves to a really high bar on our team was trying to make sure we weren't bringing any of our own judgments or ideologies or anything. So it might look like a cesspool to you, but it might look like a really, it might, you know, there's probably a very significant portion of this country that sees that list and thinks it's, uh, you know, they're, they're grateful that the list looks that way. And so I think one is trying to like, you know, I think some of you step back from like, you know, our own politics and some of this stuff. But I think secondly, you know, those pages, well, you know, what, when you're looking at engagement, what that frequently prioritizes is in the current version of the feed is sometimes comments. And those pages are definitely sensational ones. Uh, They're posting whatever the hot topic political news of the day is. And they oftentimes have like a, a lot of those pages have a very engaged audience that is in there commenting like an you know, enormous amount. And not only that, I think if you look at Ben Shapiro, I think he takes a personal pride in trolling the libs. Uh, I think he literally sells, that's not a judgment either. I think he literally sells merchandise that is about trolling the libs. And part of what that's based on is like literally that content is sometimes designed to evoke a response. So he's getting both sides, like literally the left and the right to try and engage with that content. So I think it's also not surprising that you see more kind of like trollish uh, people who are trying to get you know, content on both sides to, to engage with it. So I think that's the second thing. I think third thing, which I think is undercover when people talk about these lists is, you know, those lists look very different in other countries. There are a hundred percent like unique dynamics uh, or like elements of like uniqueness to the American media political e- news ecosystem uh, for a bunch of reasons. I think the degree, you know, the fact that we only have two parties all of the kind of like identity-based sorting that you can read about through people like Liliana Mason and Ezra Klein and others and the degree to which like, you know, people have attached a lot of their identity to their particular political affiliation and there's only two options. And so if you imagine taking the whole country, essentially slice it down the middle, you know, that's a lot of people are going to like that content. But secondly, I also think one of the things, if you look at the demographics of the two parties, the right tends to be a lot more homogenous. It tends to be more white, predominantly white, predominantly Christian. The left tends to be much more, much more heterogeneous. There are lots of different religions. They, you know, there's you know more racial diversity, etc. And so, it, I think one of the ways that plays out is it makes it much easier for a single voice to talk to a eighty or ninety percent of the right. Versus the left, where I think that's just a much harder dynamic, given the diversity and the coalition-based nature of the left. I also think that one of the things that happens as also part of that dynamic is there's just a much, there's a smaller head. Um, there's like a fatter head on the right versus on the left. And you see that play out where it makes it easier for, you know, a smaller set of publishers to accumulate and aggregate much more higher percentage of all the engagement and reach than like a much more diverse media ecosystem that might be on the other side. As I think the other thing you see is, um, you know, a lot of left and progressives read a lot of mainstream news. And so what you also have is a, you get a division between, you know, progressives, the left Democrats who read both mainstream news and some kind of more sensational political stuff, but that readership gets divided. Whereas on the right, you know, 
you have much more of it kind of aggregated inside Fox News, Dan Bongino, Daily Wire, et cetera. And then, you know, I do think if you were to look at reach, you would see a slightly different picture. But honestly, I think the biggest difference is, and this is going to probably get two in the weeds, is the difference between looking at pages, which that particular list is looking at, is looking at links on pages versus looking at URLs. Um, and all of the aggregated engagement interactions and reach on individual pieces of URLs that are being shared around the platform. So a particular New York Times link or a particular CNN link or a particular Fox News link. And when you look at a link-based ecosystem where any entity on the platform can share that link, and if you roll up all those metrics, actually you get a list that looks different. Is it more accurate or less accurate? I think that's a judgment call. I think all these different slices tell you something slightly different about the ecosystem. And I think to your, to your other, maybe there are a bunch of questions there. One of the one I didn't get to is like, how is this data used? I mean, at the end of the day, one of my kind of priors on all this stuff is that like, there's no perfect data set. Every data set has biases and agendas and imperfections. And it is from the moment uh, you decide what metrics to collect to all of the judgments you make about how to collect it, to what you do when you analyze it. And we should not be in the pursuit of perfect metrics. Instead, what we should be in the pursuit of is simply more. And that I think that like if, if somebody thinks there's bad analysis out there, I think the answer is more analysis and uh, more debate over what the metrics might mean and say. And so I would, you know, I worked hard to see if there was a way that we could get reach into our system, but there wasn't at the time, um, but my response is always like, great, if there's a different slice that data tells a different story, but is more importantly, just an important view into a different part of the system, we should 100% add it. And by the way, I had like 46 different, you know, data sets in that list and it wasn't just reach. Yeah. And I, I really take your point. I think it's very fair pushback to say, you know, we shouldn't bring our own biases to looking at those lists. And I always found it really funny, actually, that Facebook was quite defensive about them. Like there's those lists. And instead yeah. of saying, yeah, that's that's what's on the platform. That's what people are sharing and engaging with. You know, instead, they really tried to engage in this uh, defensive campaign when they where they came out and were saying, you know, look, if you cut it, th 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 this is reach data and that's not telling the full story. And if you cut it a different way, you get uh, different outcomes, which I always thought was um, was interesting and somewhat telling. But I think this question of, you know, you can cut the data different ways and it there is no one data set and it depends. I'm probably annoying all the listeners by continually saying data. Data. Data set <laughs> that, that, you know, shows a full picture. But then I guess that leads to the next obvious question of, well, how do we know that Facebook's collecting or any of these platforms are collecting the right things when mm. we're asking them to share data and you know why wouldn't they maybe just stick their head in the sand and not ask certain questions so that we don't get certain answers and how do we how do we think about that like I, I often when I'm engaging with platforms a lot of the time say something like oh this piece of information would be really interesting to have and the response that comes back is often well we don't collect that and often that's really fair you know like platforms can't collect absolutely everything and there are sort of resource constraints and you have to be asking the right kinds of targeted questions but I guess I'm wondering how we do that. Like you can often often be obvious in retrospect of this is what would have been useful or this is the question that we should have asked, but how do we know in advance and are there people um, who have sufficient expertise to know that question? That's a great question. So I, my view on it is 
there's absolutely data that they're not collecting that I think in the process of some of these conversations and work and attempts at doing research, people it's been shocking for some folks to realize it's not being collected. Um, and I can, I can speak a little bit more to kind of some of my learnings around that from the inside. But I think that we're at this moment where these were enormously successful consumer apps that grew to a scale that I think nobody ever conceived of. And, you know, Facebook for the first time is starting to slow down in terms of its growth. And that for a lot of the, you know, the early to, you know, adolescent years in which they were in their growth phases, they were flying by the seat of their pants and they were not thinking, what data do we need to collect that might be interesting to like, you know, democracy experts in 10 years? Um, instead, they were thinking, how do we keep the app from crashing and how do we add this new feature that we know everybody wants and is going to be hugely successful? And I, But I think what we're in this inflection point, and this is one of the reasons I've been engaged on the regulation side, where I think as society, we have, you know, we are at a moment where we're we want to tell some of them, like, you have to start collecting some of these other data points because they're really important for our ability to understand the impact your tool is having on the rest of the world. So I one, I just, I, I think we're at that moment and, you know, you're starting to see some industry pressure where that's starting to force them to, to measure things in ways they didn't before and yada, yada. But I think ultimately there's a, a really important role for just, you know, for our government and essentially as like an extension of, you know, our citizenry to stand up and say, hey, we want you to, to count these things and we want to see them uh, and to be able to make uh, decisions and, you know, other regulations based on them. You know, I think the question of who can decide what those metrics are, you know, it's complicated. I think it really depends on which questions you want to answer. There, you know, there are everything from, you know, questions about realm being to democracy, to discrimination and, you know, racial justice to human rights violations. There's a lot. And I think, you know, one of the lessons I feel like I learned from CrowdTangle is enabling scalable ways for the outside world to collaborate is also just like, I think, one of the best ways to approach a lot of these problems. So I want to dig into the specifics of what potential regulation might look like. As you as you mentioned, um, you've been working on this a little bit. The Times reported that you've been working on a piece of legislation introduced by uh, Senators Coons, Klobuchar, and Portman called the the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, which uh, we actually did uh, an interview with um, with Nate Persley, who helped draft it as well. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about your your role in that process and you know, what your thinking is in, in providing advice on the legislation and what the experience has been like working with lawmakers? Yeah. So I was, uh, it was not something I expected to do or planned to do, but it was actually, um, Nate reached out to me, um, about three weeks after I had three or four weeks after I had left, left Meta and, uh, said that the Coons office was interested in talking and very specifically, they were interested in trying to find ways to, essentially require a CrowdTangle-esque model into the legislation they were writing. It was hard to say no to talking to them about that. Uh, so that was kind of the beginning. And, uh, and you know, what they said is they were very familiar with CrowdTangle and they thought there was a real role for public data sets as a complement to, you know, clean room, you know, researcher approved uh, mechanisms. And so I, you know, I talked them through a bunch of different ways in which we had kind of set up our model, what worked, what didn't, our lessons learned. And there was a real hunger 
for basically exactly what we've done. And so I worked with them to help draft some of the language. That work is still ongoing. It's working on it this morning. And and then, you know, there were also other parts of the bill that I'd had some experience with. I think the the idea of making it easier to uh, archive and share removed content was something I talked to them a lot about. So yeah, it became kind of a super fascinating uh, chance to share just some of what we'd learned and also provide some perspective on, you know, what was feasible and what wasn't um, around some of the technical details. And then, you know, I think that so that single experience is both unexpected and then the degree to which other lawmakers around the world are thinking about similar things is also totally unexpected. So I've had similar conversations in a ton of different places, including Australia, the European Union, UK, and more. So um, it's been super fascinating. I'm trying hard to stay in my lane and make sure I only talk about things that I know what I'm talking about. Um, but I think there's, you know, there's a lot of interest in transparency, but there's not a lot of real uh, meat on the bones once regulators start trying to write something about transparency. And so um, to date, there's been a, a lot of opportunity to contribute uh, based on what we learned. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone seems to be in favor of transparency. It gets thrown yes. around a, a lot. You know, it, no one wants to come out and say, no, opacity is amazing. Let's keep it that way. But then once you say, okay, what transparency? Um, there's often a, a dot, dot, dot. Yes. And sometimes compared to affordable housing, like everybody's for right. it. Until it <laughs> yeah, shows exactly. up in your backyard and suddenly you lose some support. But I'm curious then, like, because there does seem to be this kind of lost in translation thing between engineers who know what's possible, what exists, what technical capacity is, and then lawmakers and policymakers who have certain ideas about what would be useful, and then sort of trying to bridge that divide and have that conversation. But then even if you can get to a point where you agree on, okay, well, let's say we want this kind of data, finding a way to put that into legislative language so that it's sufficiently clear and certain, but also not to, uh, like, I mean, there must be questions around, you know, locking in certain kinds of requests and not adapting to to new circumstances as they arrive, given that, you know, this is legislation that's probably going to be around for a while. We don't get too many bites at the apple with this kind of thing. So I'm curious how you found that process coming to it from a, a, a non-legal background about, has it surprised you how difficult it is to do that translation or, or how's that process been? Yeah, no, you're like, you're a hundred percent right. And you have in some ways just summarized like my, my like personal learnings for like the last several months. It is super hard to get into language for a bunch of reasons, including uh, exactly what you said, you want to future-proof it. You don't want to make it completely obsolete in an industry and on a bunch of mediums that are changing constantly. So one, how do you future-proof as much as possible? Secondly, how do you make sure it's platform agnostic on like a bunch of platforms that have some really huge differences? There are, you know, there are, there are, I don't even think there are any public engagements on a Snap story. So like, what do you do about that or ephemeral content versus non-ephemeral content? So, there's a, so one, how do you future-proof it? How do you make it platform agnostic? Um, how do you not run up against, and you, Evelyn, you'll know more than I will, but like, a lot of the, you know, potential legal challenges in the U.S., the First Amendment, you know, and not only the First Amendment, but also the current state of the court uh, system is, you know, taking very narrow views on when you can compel speech from a corporation and when does, you know, asking them to provide data, you know, constitute compelled speech. And, you know, that's really hard and complicated and will probably ultimately just get adjudicated in the courts, but trying to make sure that you don't totally 
make it super easy to you know uh, to negate. Um, there are different valid. There are different concerns in the EU. A lot more around privacy. I mean, obviously, privacy is in the U.S. as well, but the privacy stuff is also very complicated, especially because on a platform like Facebook, there's almost always going to be some privacy risk. And when we were internal, we could mitigate it as much as possible until we got to a point where we felt comfortable with the risk relative to like the value that was being provided. But those sort of calculuses get much harder when you're trying to write them into legislation. Um, and that's to say nothing of all the politics. So it is, it's been very tricky. I think there are, you know, I think we're, we've made a lot of progress and there's still progress made. And I still think this work is important, even if this current batch of legislation ends up going nowhere. Um, I think crafting model versions of all this stuff is an important progress in the space. But yeah, I, it's been a, it's been a challenging, but fun learning experience. And um, for all, for all those reasons. I want to ask you more about the the privacy point, which I think is uh, a really key one. I mean, one of the interesting things about the last few years is at the same time as we've seen a push for more transparency from platforms, we've also seen a push sometimes from the same people for more privacy for users. Um, and those are both important values, but sometimes they may not mesh so well because, of course, perhaps if you provide more transparency into what's going on in a service, you're going to be revealing to some extent personal data about people. So can you talk through that? You know, have I have I misstated that trade-off? And how how do you think about you know, writing that into legislation in a way where it's not going to get misused. It's super complicated. And the, the real honest answer is there are completely conflicting regulatory and legal requirements if you look at like a global level around some of this stuff. So there are areas where there is some regulation or in some cases just like public pressure to do one thing and literally, you know, like legal obstacles to being able to do it in certain places. You know, GDPR has made it much more complicated to try and share, share privacy sensitive data sets. Um, and that's a real like conflict internally is, you know, what we want, you know, for, at some of these platforms is they want it, there are certain data sets they would like to share, but they just have to go up against how many millions of dollars they'll be fine for every single potential, you know, piece of PII or privacy, you know, personal identifiable information that somehow, you know, gets exposed. So the, that part has been very complicated and is a real obstacle to this. And I know you had asked earlier about some of like the internal incentives and dynamics of doing this work. I, you know, one of them is definitely just some of the external legal and regulatory dynamics, even for platforms that want to do more of this. And we definitely ran into that. And it's also why I think trying to clear this up from a regulatory standpoint, it would be a huge step forward. You know, I also think, so how we've been thinking about this from a like crowd tangled model esque way for regulation is can there be some sort of agreed upon definition of this term called meaningfully public data? And the idea right now is if you just took the, the legal definition of public, you know, relative to like the terms of service on Facebook, there is a lot of content there that comes from users that is technically public, that they have set to public at some point. But as users, if you ask them, is there like a reasonable expectation from that user that that piece of content is public and therefore like could be programmatically provided to like every newsroom in the world or something? The answer is 100% no. And so there's this gray area right now between like the user expectations around privacy and 
publicness and then sometimes what the actual technical and legal semantics are. And so one of the ways we have tried, we're attempting to try and bridge that right now is can you come up with a definition of what we've been using the term for meaningfully public? And that's setting a higher bar. So it's taking the legal definition of public, but then setting a higher bar or an additional set of conditions on top of it. And in some ways it's a little bit, and I'm going to get way above my skis on any uh, actual legal scholarship here. So don't, please call me out, but don't embarrass me too much. Um, in, in the idea of like Sullivan v. New York Times, this idea of like public figures and they are afforded, you know, different, you know, protections under the law or in some cases less. Is there some sort of digital version of that where you could say, if there's an account that has 50,000 followers, that we're going to consider that a meaningfully public account. If there's an account that represents the president or the prime minister of you know, the UK, and they are using that account for official state business, is there a universe where we say, yes, we're going to consider that a meaningfully public account? And could we take some body of all of that meaningfully public stuff and make it publicly available in like data sets and dashboards and libraries, et cetera, so that the public as well as researchers and civil society groups and election groups can all see that particular data set in real time and study it and monitor it and flag things that are egregiously against the rules that may have slipped through or simply, you know, use it to, you know, pass important new things on to fact checkers or whatever it is. And in some ways, that's essentially kind of the model we had at CrowdTangle is we took a certain subset of public accounts and we took a narrower version of that that we thought were particularly important to like the public sphere. And we just made it really easy to see everything they were doing online. And so how can you both like legally and from like a legislative standpoint, mimic that, but get the details right. And in a way that, you know, privacy community will also feel comfortable with. So what we're doing is attempting to do that. And we're doing it through um, a couple different mechanisms. One is like size of the followers of the account as well as are there special designations that the platforms have given certain accounts? Do we know that they represent and are being used for official businesses, business in, you know, government roles or other things? So we're still kind of working on the details, but the idea is can we carve out some sort of meaningfully public mental framework that we can use in legislation to, to frame up some of this? So I want to talk a little bit about the real politic of all of this, because yeah. we can talk about designing the perfect transparency mandate until the cows come home. But if it doesn't pass, um, it's as good as no transparency mandate at all. And one of the hopes here, I think, in this space generally is like, to the extent that both sides of the aisle have very different gripes with social media platforms everyone seems to agree that we can't trust them we need to know what's going on and tra more transparency would be better so to the extent that you know we can find bipartisan agreement this might be the space but i'm wondering uh you know having sort of seen the sausage get made a little bit how much that's true or whether you're seeing compromises having to be made for political reasons and sort of how far, you know, you were talking before about the benefits of creating model legislation, whether or not it passes. And I guess the question is, you know, is that what's happening or do these reflect blue sky thinking? Do they reflect model pieces of legislation or is that too optimistic and the politics infect every aspect mm. of this process? Yeah. I mean, listen, the safe money is, I think these days in America is probably that nothing passes. But I think if anything has a chance of passing, it, it feels like 
this might be it. And, you know, in a lot of these, I think you made the exact point I was going to make, which is in some of these spaces, there's an enormous amount of energy to do something. But literally, when you ask what is the problem they're trying to solve, the parties on each side have you know, the complete opposite thing they're trying to solve. Uh, you know, when it comes to content moderation, one side thinks there is too much censorship. The other side thinks there isn't enough. That seems like a hard problem to solve with a piece of legislation that will get both sides to support. On transparency, they both agree on what the problem is. So that's what gives me optimism and hope. I think there's a lot of work being done on taking the initial draft legislation and getting a lot of feedback from privacy community, democracy community, from advocacy and trade groups on both sides of the aisle, right now. And there will be a new version that's ready, hopefully sometime soon. I'm not quite sure what the timeline is. And then I think, you know, the rubble will hit the road then on whether any, any, and if so, how many uh, Republicans are willing to sign up. And I think, you know, that'll be the moment we know. And I think, you know, there's also the chance that this could get attached to something else. um, Because I think one of the feedback we've gotten so far is that, you know, in a lot of ways, people are supportive, but it's also just not top of their list, which also is is kind of a good sign, I think. Um, And so if there could be something that does seem like it has a chance of making it through, you know, my sense so far based on everything I've heard is that this is relatively non-controversial and could potentially be added on to something. And so I think that's another avenue. But I will say also, you know, in other places in the EU, legislation will 100% pass. And the question is simply, uh, what does it end up looking like? But like, you know, the DSA is going to pass in June and it's really what are, you know, what are the different chapters around data access and research going to look like when it does pass? Yeah. So what is it going to look like when it, when it (laughs) does pass? I mean, is it, is it looking like to your view, it will be sensible or is it going to be pushing the envelope to an extent that is concerning in your view? No, I think I would actually frame it the other way. I would say, is it going to look sensible or is it going to have so little teeth that it's largely is not going to make much of an impact. Those are, I think, the, the two likely options on the table right now. It is honestly, I think it is the peak moment of feedback and negotiation, literally like this week and next week on fleshing out the details of some of the chapters that go inside uh, Article 31, which is the particular article that's going to deal with a lot of this stuff inside the DSA. And so, you know, there are stakeholder and signatory groups and uh, in Europe that have not slept much over the last week or two because of the current state of negotiations around a bunch of this. And I think it's too early to tell where it's going to end up, but there will be some teeth to it. The question I think is how much and are they the right teeth? I'm curious your view on sort of the longer term broader project here, because, you know, when I, i fundamentally agree with you that we you know step one is transparency you can't solve problems that you don't understand we can't regulate based on anecdata uh we're going to terribly misfire but when i talk to people about that many people get very disappointed at the idea that (laughs) you know we have these massive problems and all you want to do is you know uh, have a little more visibility into how terrible things are and so you know you were talking before about one of the main benefits of transparency possibly being you know empowering 
communities and responses and allowing sort of, uh, you know, where there, where there aren't platforms devoting resources, uh, local communities to be able to respond or understand what's going on. W- what is the, the point of transparency? Is it an end hmm. in and of itself? Or do you hmm. see it as, you know, step one in a broader project of let's crack these things open, get some more information, and then step two will be, we'll go back to the drawing board, uh, go through the whole making the sausage again and pass something else that then, you know, uh, has more maybe coercive or specific demands or, you know, we start to think about formulating industry standards based on what we know is happening across different platforms. How do you think about that? Is this step one in sort of uh, a long-term, you know, road or is it sort of this is what we really need and will solve some of our problems in and of itself? That's a terrific question. So I, I, I think the answer is both. I do think that in at the end of the day, transparency is a responsibility that the platforms have and shouldn't be seen as a strategy or a means to anything. Uh, one of the big challenges I ran into when I was there is that for a long time, transparency was seen as a means. It was seen as a, a strategy to, to get legitimacy and to build trust. It's really hard to like quantify those things. And so it oftentimes made it hard when you're trying to evaluate its success or not in a way that just made it difficult. And it, you know, honestly, one of the things I probably regret the most over like last uh, four years is not better articulating it just as simply as like a responsibility that I thought the company had um, by virtue of hosting so much civic and political public content is to let the world be able to see it. So I, I do think it's an end. But I do think that what you get out of it and what I hope you get out of it, and this would be all of the work to be done once you get there, is collaboratively managed public spaces. That right now you have more and more of like the world's town squares owned by private companies and moreover owned by private companies that may not have a single staff member in the particular country they're in. And I think it is a much better and sustainable and healthier long-term governance model to create a system where there be more collaborative management of these spaces. But you can't do that unless there's more openness and transparency about what they look like and how they're how they're being run. So it is a liberal democratic goal of like finding ways to create more society-wide ability to participate in the design and monitoring and structure and management of these spaces versus handing them over to a small handful of private companies. I think that that's the vision at the end of the day. But I, you know, I will say one thing also is like, I, I obviously really believe in at least, you know, the model we created and I, you know, I, I believe in the research proposal. I've done a lot of this stuff, but you know, I'm also humble about like, it's not going to solve all the problems. Um, I don't think all these problems are solvable. I think some of them are just as old as time and there are no, Holy grails, transparency isn't it, but I hope it, and there will also be ways in which this data creates problems as well. If everything is passed and we get everything we wanted, it it will absolutely create some unintended consequences that, you know, row in the opposite direction. A lot of us are trying to head in, but is it a step forward? And I think an important piece of like a better foundation in the long term. I think it is. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. That was fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes on the Lawfare podcast feed, 
along with our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. And we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. If you're interested in getting new episodes whenever they come out, remember to subscribe to the separate feed. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Kara Schillen. And our producer is Jen Padja Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and Arbiters of Truth on whatever app you use to find your podcasts. And consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening.